many planets does our solar system have? Eight? Nine? For more than a hundred years, the answer has gone back and forth, with rather far-reaching consequences for how we understand our place in the cosmos. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and today's podcast takes a look at Planet Nine and the long history of planetary additions to our circumsolar family. It's been fantastic. You know, my head is spinning pretty much all the time, but that's okay. <laughs> Constantine Batigan is an assistant professor of planetary science at Caltech and co-author of a recent paper predicting the existence of Planet Nine, a distant 10 Earth mass-sized body sculpting the orbits of icy bodies in the outer solar system. Right now it's a prediction, but our theoretical paper will become a discovery the moment Planet Nine is caught on camera. Batigan and his colleague Michael Brown started out by trying to explain a funny coincidence. The orbits of six very distant Kuiper Belt objects, or KBOs, seem to be aligned in a decidedly non-random way, lying in nearly the same plane and pointing in approximately the same direction. Left to their own devices, these orbits should have quickly evolved to take on random orientations, meaning that something is out there keeping them in line right now, like a planet. And the gravitational torques introduced by a planet out there could also explain why some objects have detached orbits. That is, unlike other KBOs, their point of closest approach to the Sun is still too far out to be influenced much by the gravity of Neptune, making it hard to imagine how they got pushed out there. The model developed by Batygin and Brown also kept producing a group of KBOs with orbits perpendicular to the plane of the rest of the Kuiper Belt, a quirk that turned into a third piece of evidence when just such a population was reported last fall. Planet X, or Planet 9, or however you want to call it, has been speculated on for, for over a hundred years now, right? And each one of those speculations places the planet somewhere different, uh, but importantly, the kind of main difference between them is the is the physics of what these planets accomplish. Right? What are these planets aimed at solving? And in our case, we have a very clear, you know, sort of three-pronged problem that we are claiming that Planet Nine is, is explaining. It's explaining this weird alignment of orbits in the distant Kuiper Belt. It's explaining the fact that the orbits of Sedna and VP-113 type objects in the Kuiper Belt are detached from Neptune, right? That's number two. And, and finally, it's this really strange perpendicular population of Kuiper Belt objects. So these are the three observational you know, mysteries that we're explaining with our planet. That Planet Nine accounts so elegantly for three separate observations, especially when Batygin and Brown only set out to explain one of them, is part of what makes this idea so compelling. When we look back on how we arrived at the answer, we only were concerned with the orbital alignment. And the fact that, you know, our model kind of brought with it a few other features, one of which we weren't even aware of in Kuiper Belt, namely these perpendicular orbits. I mean, I just didn't know they were there, and neither did Mike. From that point of view, it kind of satisfies what a theory is supposed to do. But a good theory is not only supposed to explain what you're looking to explain, it's supposed to explain something that you're not looking to explain originally and make testable predictions. That's how Tom Levinson, professor at MIT and director of the graduate program in science writing there, sees it too. A quality of elegance in this context is 
does some prediction, some idea, some claim address not just the proximate question that provoked somebody to do the work, uh, but does it actually subsume more of nature than it set out to in a coherent explanation? That's not to say a theory is proven exactly, but it does give a sense that we're headed in the right direction. You know, with Planet Nine, you have a, a complicated, relatively newly identified, difficult to make sense of region of, of the solar system with the Kuiper Belt and all the stuff that's sort of way out there, where different objects do very interesting and different things. And Planet Nine provides something that helps you organize a lot of what seemed like very disparate behaviors out there. Of course, Planet Nine is not the first addition to the solar system to be predicted. For most of human history, there were six planets, the ones that could be observed with the naked eye wandering across the night sky, plus the Earth. Uranus was number seven, spotted through a telescope in 1781 by William Herschel, who thought at first it was a comet. But it was number eight that became a shining example of planetary prediction. In the great romantic story of, of 19th century science, is the discovery of Neptune pretty much exactly where a great mathematical astronomer, Urbain Jean-Joseph Le Verrier, I love saying that name, um, predicted it would be. And, you know, it was classic Newtonian reasoning. There was unexplained motions in the orbit of Uranus, uh, itself fairly recently discovered. And once all the other sources of gravitational influence, Jupiter and Saturn and everything, had been applied to, to try and understand the orbit of Uranus, and there was still this leftover bit that wasn't explained, the inference was that there was another unseen source of gravitational pull that had to be out there. And Le Verrier and an Englishman, Adams, both set themselves to try and calculate what that would be and where it would be. And Le Verrier gets pride of place because he was able to persuade an observer to go look for it. And, you know, within three hours or so, you know, in the first night, in the, in the first part of the first night of looking for it, the two German astronomers that Leveria had contacted found Neptune. Right where Leveria calculated it would be. While the observation side is still forthcoming, the similarities between this prediction and Planet Nine are not lost on its originators. From the point of view of history of science, you know, there's a ton that we can learn. There's actually some parallels that can be drawn between the calculations that we've done and the discovery of Neptune. You know, Neptune was, of course, uh, predicted before it was discovered. And, you know, our, our goal really was to, as much as possible, work in the vein of Leverrier and the discovery of Neptune. The successful prediction and discovery of Neptune captured the scientific imagination and led to several other planetary predictions that proved more problematic, both in the outer solar system and at the opposite extreme. The orbit of Mercury was observed to shift or precess each year by just a little bit more, 42.98 arcseconds to be exact, than could be explained with the known planets and Newtonian celestial mechanics. And the success of Neptune seemed to offer a clue to this puzzle as well. I mean, it was just this perfect triumph of analytical method, perfect triumph of Newton's theory, perfect triumph of a kind of inferential reasoning that is very, very powerful indeed. And so when Leveria himself went on to try and resolve the entire solar system, analyze the motions of all the planets, and got to Mercury and found there was another unexplained residue of motion, the explanation seems obvious. There had to be some other source of gravitational influence, this time closer to the Sun uh, than Mercury rather than further out from, from Uranus. And so it seemed like it ought to have been there, right? You know, it seemed very powerful, like out of every single 
bit of reasoning and recent experience said there should be a Vulcan. So people started looking for it. They started looking and they started finding it. The only problem, it was never there. There were, you know, something on the order of a dozen examples, uh, you know, reputable sightings, reputable either amateur or professional astronomers who thought they saw something there and said so. Uh, but of course it was never there. And the problem then becomes how do you deal with this discrepancy between your really, you know, strongly supported inference and the fact that the inference doesn't pan out. The existence, or not, of Vulcan became a quagmire that it seemed could not be resolved. Leverrier died in 1877, convinced that the planet had to be there. But it wasn't until 1915 that the question of Mercury's perihelion precession received a satisfying answer. And it wasn't thanks to Vulcan. There were a bunch of attempts to come up with ad hoc solutions. But basically, broadly speaking, people ignored it until Einstein came along. And working on a problem for completely different reasons, uh, ended up solving it not by coming up with some new observation or doing a more sophisticated calculation, but by coming up with a radically different understanding of the universe than that contained within the prior incredibly successful theory, Newton's universal gravitation. Those 42.98 arc seconds that couldn't be explained using Newtonian mechanics were perfectly accounted for by Einstein's theory of general relativity. So close to the massive sun, the curvature of space-time affects Mercury's orbit with no help at all from an extra planet. He calculated the orbit of Mercury and found out that his theory predicted it perfectly. It was just, you know, spot on. It just dropped out of the calculation. And, uh, you know, this really moved Einstein. And, and when I started reading Einstein's letters, I saw things like, you know, I was beside myself with joy. I felt heart palpitations. Uh, and all those kind of things, you know, if you, if you spend a lot of time with Einstein, you know he's not usually you know, an enormously emotionally enthusiastic man. He doesn't jump up and down a whole lot, right? Vulcan, or rather the absence thereof, ultimately provided one of the first tests of general relativity, a theory that forever changed our understanding of the universe. Meanwhile, in the outer solar system, the absence of another predicted planet was causing headaches of its own. Ever since the discovery of Neptune, speculations concerning a still more distant planet swirled, fueled by reported discrepancies in the orbits of Uranus and Neptune. In 1906, Percival Lowell coined the term Planet X and began a dedicated search to find a distant trans-Neptunian planet. He passed away in 1916, 14 years before Clyde Tombaugh used his observatory to discover Pluto. But Pluto seemed too small to perturb the orbits of ice giants, and its mass estimate was revised downward throughout the 20th century, from perhaps one Earth mass in 1931 to one 500th of an Earth mass in 1978. A decade after that, the spacecraft Voyager 2 flew past Neptune, providing an unprecedented chance to measure its mass and revealing that the ice giant was actually 0.5% less massive than previously thought. This new, trimmed-down Neptune resolved the remaining discrepancies in the orbit of Uranus, removing the need for a planet X at all. I think, you know, looking through the history of science allows you to, to an extent, learn from others' mistakes. And one uniting factor that uh, kind of ties together all of the unsuccessful attempts at predicting a planet in the outer solar system actually bad data. 
Looking back at Vulcan and Planet X, it's easy to think that Leverrier and Lowell just made mistakes. Errors that we've learned to guard against, that we're more adept at spotting, more clever at avoiding. But are we? We do know more, but we aren't smarter. We aren't wiser. Doing science is really, really hard. It's hard sort of at every step. It's hard to come up with interesting, testable, powerful theoretical ideas. It's hard to do observations. You know, from wherever you start, the next observation you make is at the limit of what's known then, and it's always hard, right? As the history of science reminds us, you can be brilliant and meticulous, and you still will have problems, and, and should, because what you're trying to do is tease out of material experience, tease out of nature, something that, to that point, no one has yet been able to extract. That sort of humility learned from prior episodes of Planetary Predictions suffuses the rhetoric surrounding Planet Nine. With this in mind, we spent a lot of time trying to ensure that we weren't being led astray, we weren't chasing a red herring by looking at you know, the signals that were not actually there. So that's kind of the, the motivation behind trying to place all of our research into a historical context, right? We really wanted to ensure that we aren't, you know, falling down a slippery slope. The models are robust. If there's a 10 Earth mass planet out there, it will have been silently organizing the outer solar system just the way that we observe today. The observations have been vetted too. There's only a 0.007% chance that the orbits of those six KBOs just happen to be aligned the way they are, with no planet to wrangle them into place. But that's still a chance, however small. If an exhaustive search does not turn up a planet nine, then we'll have a new dilemma on our hands. If that happens, then you've got a really big problem. The objects we, we do know about are still behaving as they behave, and they still require some explanation for it. One thing we do know amply is that in many, many, many different examples, nature has more ways to hide what's going on than we have to ferret them out on our first inference. So the search is on for a new ninth planet. When Pluto was discovered and granted that title, it skewed our standard picture of the solar system. Out to Neptune, it's surprisingly orderly. The planets orbit along nearly circular paths in approximately the same plane. Pluto, with its tilted, elongated orbit, never seemed to fit in that sense, and when it was reclassified as a dwarf planet in 2006, we went back to a calm, tidy solar system. If or when Planet 9, with its vast, eccentric orbit, is caught on camera, that will change again. I think actually Planet 9 makes the solar system slightly less weird. Planet 9 better contextualizes the solar system into the galactic planetary senses. Planets that orbit other stars typically do not have orderly orbits like the ones we have in the solar system, um, especially for distant orbits. High eccentricities are the norm. As a result, the fact that the solar system is so dynamically cold makes it somewhat anomalous. And I think that Planet 9, in this case, really is our link to the extrasolar world, if you will. Whether it's Neptune and the triumph of Newtonian celestial mechanics, or Vulcan and the discovery of general relativity, or Planet Nine and the chance to see our solar system in a new light, planetary predictions continue to shape our understanding of our place in the cosmos. So let the hunt begin. I actually went observing 
for the first time. I mean, really, realistically, like for the first time, to the top of the mountain, you know, it's very different from doing theory. <laughs> it's just the sky and there's so much stuff there. You know, you just don't have a good appreciation for it until you go look. You've been listening to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and you can find more information about Vulcan and Planet Nine on our website, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com. Thank you.